0: This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host physician assistant, Lisa DeAndre Linnell. Do physician assistants have influence over the circumstances that cause patients to file lawsuits? Risk management strategies for PAs. You're listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. With me today is Dr. Jeffrey Nicholson. President of the PA Experts Network, a physician assistant medical legal consulting firm, and president of the American Academy of PAs in Legal Medicine. And he's joining us today to discuss risk management strategies for PAs and how to avoid a malpractice suit. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to Partners in Practice. Thank you, Lisa. Well, Jeff, let's start by discussing PA malpractice. Tell us what's the difference between the malpractice that PAs carry and the malpractice that MDs carry?
1: Well, malpractice in general applies equally to both PAs and MDs in terms of medical care that's being provided. The difference is that physicians are also responsible in their supervisory role for physician assistance. So that adds an extra burden besides the medical care that's provided. They are also then ultimately responsible for the medical care provided by PAs. But the definition of malpractice for the two are exactly the same, but each is held to a different standard of care. It may or may not be the same depending upon what the medical issue is.
0: Yeah, that's a common misunderstanding that PAs are required to carry the same amounts of insurance and malpractice as physicians, correct?
1: That is correct.
0: So you're a PA, but you're also a PA expert witness. What makes a PA qualified to be a legal expert and what is their role?
1: Well, a physician assistant, expert witness, or any expert witness for that matter, is someone who will be able to review medical records and testify whether or not the standard of care was met for that particular medical encounter. The standard of care is generally defined as what a provider with similar credential experience and training would be expected to know or do under similar circumstances. That's a fairly standard definition of the standard of care. In Wisconsin, they go a little bit more detailed, and they say exercising the degree of care, skill, and judgment, which a reasonable physician assistant would exercise, given the state of medical knowledge at the time of diagnosis or treatment. So that is what a PA expert is asked to do, to look at the medical record and to determine whether or not the standard of care was met.
0: So do PA experts work in a specialty? Are they cardiovascular PA experts or orthopedic PA experts, or do they cover all of the specialties in primary care?
1: It really depends upon the issue involved. It's generally best to have a PA who is experienced in the specialty of the PA's conduct in question because they are more knowledgeable about the details of that particular practice. For example, I'm a full-time emergency medicine PA and have also for many, many years been a family practice PA. So I am comfortable in testifying on the standard of care for emergency medicine and basic primary care medicine, whether it be urgent care, family practice, and so on. I would not be as comfortable in testifying to the standard of care of a neurosurgery physician assistant. Instead, I would then, through my consulting company, go out and find a neurosurgery PA who would be willing and interested to review that particular case.
0: Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So how did you get into the medical legal aspects of PA practice?
1: Well, I was the director of the physician assistant program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for many years. And as soon as I became director... I started getting phone calls from attorneys. In my particular case, an insurance adjuster came over to my office in Madison, Wisconsin, and had an x-ray. He wanted me to review it to see if I noticed a navicular fracture or not. And based upon our interaction, he decided to not settle the case, but go ahead and forward that on to the attorneys. And then the attorney asked me to be the expert witness for that case. And so that was my very first case. And then by word of mouth, that attorney gave my name to other attorneys. And that's basically how it happens with most of us who get into this. We're just asked, and then we get more and more referrals as the years go by.
0: Fortunately, most of us have never been involved in a malpractice case, and we'd rather not. Could you walk us through the process of a lawsuit, and what happens?
1: Absolutely. What first happens is that the patient who has the concern will usually approach an attorney because they're upset with the care they got. The attorney will listen to what they have to say, will gather the medical records, and will look through the medical records. Now, many of the attorney's offices have legal nurse consultants who do this job. That they'll initially look through the records, and the legal nurse consultants will tell the attorney whether or not there is enough justification to move forward with a potential lawsuit. Then the second step would be that the attorney would try to find an expert such as myself or physician assistance to also look over those medical records to see whether we agree that the standard of care was either met or not met. I'm talking on the plaintiff side now. And if I agreed that the standard of care was not met, then the attorney would ask me for usually a formal written report, a letter stating my reasons why I believe the standard of care was not met, and that they will either do one of two things. They'll either ask for a written report or they'll take my verbal report by telephone and turn that into an affidavit, and then they'll use that affidavit to actually file the lawsuit. Once the lawsuit is filed, then the defense attorney gets involved and they hire their own experts, and then there are depositions on both sides, the deposition for the plaintiff's side and the deposition for the defense side, so there will be experts on both sides. So that's the deposition phase. So there's the discovery phase, which I mentioned earlier. Then there's the deposition phase. And if after the depositions they're unable to settle, when they really do want to settle at that point, if they can't settle or come to an agreement, then they'll go to the trial and there'll be a trial phase involved. And so those are the basic three steps involved, discovery, deposition, and trial.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Partners in Practice on REACHMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Nicholson, president of the PA Experts, a Physician Assistant Medical Legal Consulting Firm, and president of the American Academy of PAs in Legal Medicine, and we're discussing risk management strategies for PAs and how to avoid a malpractice suit. Okay, Jeff, so people love statistics, and we want to hear numbers. I've been a PA 10 years. What is my career chance of being sued?
1: Okay, well, first let me say that there is not a lot of published research out there on malpractice of physician assistants, and so I chose as my PhD dissertation topic to compare the malpractice incidence of physician assistants with that of nurse practitioners and physicians over the first 17 years of data collected in the National Practitioner Data Bank. The National Practitioner Data Bank is that depository of adverse events and malpractice that is required reporting from all hospitals and clinics and medical examining boards and attorneys' firms and insurance companies all throughout the country. So we have a national depository of issues that was established by an act of Congress in 1986, and that first went into effect in 1991. My dissertation research determined that For that first 17-year period in the National Practitioner Data Bank, that would be 1991 through 2007, there was one lawsuit for every 2.7 physicians and one lawsuit for every 32.5 physician assistants. So it showed that physician assistants had a 12 times less likelihood of being sued over that 17-year period than physicians did. So it's basically 3% over a 17-year period as opposed to physicians, which was a little over one in three in that 17-year period.
0: Well, that's impressive. So let's dig into the meat of this. Based on your review of PA malpractice cases, share with us some of the common themes or mistakes that are made by PAs that has led to them being sued.
1: Sure. I actually will be doing a presentation at the AAPA conference in Atlanta, and I also recently just did a similar presentation for the Wisconsin PA Academy, and it was looking at cases that were reviewed by not only myself, but other members of the American Academy of PAs in legal medicine. And I'll just review with you some of these common themes. Failure to appreciate the severity of illness, delay in reviewing a diagnostic test and getting back to the patient, practicing outside one's training or comfort level, failure to formulate or document a differential diagnosis failure to treat aggressively enough, failure to communicate with specialists or the patient's primary physician, failure to ensure close follow-up, say in 1 to 2 days as opposed to a week to 10 days, failure to request assistance from your supervising MD, failure to provide continuity of care, especially in the emergency room for example, when a when you see a patient and you think you're turfing it to your supervising physician, but they don't quite understand that, and so you don't go back and follow up on that patient, and they tend to fall through the cracks. That happens frequently. Failure to treat patients respectfully. Failure to clarify and document the transfer of care, especially in the ED setting. For example, who's in charge? Are you in charge, or is your supervising physician in charge? You need to ask them, are you taking over, or am I still involved? Failure to get a read on films by the supervising physician or the radiologist in a timely fashion, being hasty and rushing in your patient care, and minimizing patient complaints or findings. Those are some common themes that i found throughout a whole host of cases that I've reviewed over the last several years.
0: Yikes. Well, let's pick a couple fun ones, and you can give us some recommendations. And I'd like to start with a differential diagnosis. So we're trained in school to automatically have a differential diagnosis in our heads, but we don't necessarily write it down. Are you saying that we should be writing it down?
1: It would be my very strong recommendation that for more complicated patients, for example, abdominal pain or chest pain, that you document a differential diagnosis. Otherwise, if you don't, you won't remember necessarily what you were thinking a year later, two years later. The lawyers won't remember and even the experts won't know. We'd sort of have to look at the chart and say, well, did you order the appropriate diagnostic test that would lead me to believe that you had a differential diagnosis in mind, or did you just assume and jump to the conclusion of your diagnosis without considering these other events? One of the most common problems in uh, PA malpractice is misdiagnosis. In fact, that's the number one reason for being sued. And so it would be my strong recommendation that a differential diagnosis be included In the patient record, if you don't come up with a final diagnosis in your chart, then it's your responsibility to document what steps will be taken to determine what the final diagnosis would be. Many, many providers, physicians included, make the mistake of putting down a symptom such as abdominal pain as a diagnosis. And that's not really a diagnosis, as we know that's a symptom. So unless you document what might be causing the document pain, abdominal pain, and what steps you're going to take to determine what's causing that abdominal pain, you have not done your job.
0: That's really good advice and let's talk about charting for a second because you know we're all in such a hurry and and many of us have electronic medical records now but a patient will come in and give, you know, 15 chief complaints and are we then required to go through each one of those and and how can you avoid that to make the chart not so messy?
1: If a patient comes in with multiple complaints You've got to sort of treat them separately, okay? If you don't have enough time on a 15-minute office visit or a 5- to 15-minute ER urgent care visit, you really need to tell the patient that you can only take care of one or two issues at a time. So that would be my first recommendation. And then for each complaint, you've got to be do a very thorough history. I don't know if folks remember in school we were taught old carts, O-L-D-C-A-R-T-S, That's for any specific symptom, especially it fits very well for things like chest pain or abdominal pain. What's the onset, location, duration, character, aggravating factors, relieving factors, treatments tried, and symptoms associated? So that mnemonic, old CARTS, is very important and very helpful in helping you to do a complete history of your chief complaint.
0: All right, so I'm at work and I make a mistake. Do I apologize to the patient, do I call my attorney, or do I do both?
1: If you make a mistake and you're concerned a patient had a bad outcome and you're feeling this, you know, in your gut, oh my goodness, I wish this hadn't happened, the first thing you need to do is contact a risk management officer in your clinic or in your hospital and discuss the case with them. It is very appropriate to apologize to a patient for a bad outcome, but you do not do that by admitting any fault or blame or pointing the finger at anyone else. You say, I'm very sorry, Mrs. Jones. We didn't get the expected results that we were hoping for. I'm sorry this didn't turn out. We did the very best that we could. Let's look at what else we might be able to do at this point. So you keep them involved. You keep them knowing that you're concerned. You apologize for the bad outcome, but you do not admit that the bad outcome was your fault.
0: So Jeff, in closing, give us a couple of your key pearls on how to practice safely.
1: Don't rush take care of yourself, take frequent breaks, respect your patients, and critically, critically document as best as you can what you're thinking in the chart so that two or three years from now, you will have a clear idea of what you did and what you were thinking, and others will be able to do the same.
0: Thank you, Jeff, for coming on the show.
1: You're very welcome.
0: I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Jeffrey Nicholson, for taking the time to help us better understand PA liability and how we can practice safely. You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.